This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the muni market uh, has been pretty solid here with lots of issuance of all sorts, but what's going forward? We are broadcasting live from the Build America Mutual here in New York City. We're lucky to be joined by the CEO of Build America Mutual, Sean McCarthy, as well as uh, the chairman of Build America, uh, Bob Cochran, uh, joining us right now. And uh, uh, Sean, let me start with you. Um, where do we see uh, investors in munis and how is that changing from what we've seen maybe previous year or so? Well, you know, I think the investors are still and have been the same for quite a while, and that is a retail investor. Um, and we see uh, the marriage between what municipal issuers are doing, uh, cities and towns are raising funds to build fundamental infrastructure, and those bonds are being bought by retail mom and pop people in states, New York, New Jersey, California, um, in order to support the construction of bridges, tunnels, roads, and hospitals. I'm curious about the, the rate of activity that you're seeing. Bob, come on in on the conversation. I mean, I am curious. I drive around the roads here in the New York metro area. Man, there's a lot of infrastructure spending that could be done, and we're starting to see it on, <laughs> the, nice air, it. on the airports. I am being nice. Um, but are we seeing more investment in infrastructure? Because um, we're not seeing a ton coming out of the federal government. Right. Well, there's a tremendous amount of investment going on in infrastructure around the country. It's just not as much as we need. Yeah. Uh, the um, but it's growing. Let's say year uh, over year. Association of Engineers have yeah. said we need what two trillion. We're two trillion behind, or need to raise another two trillion in infrastructure funding over the next ten years. Uh, we're doing about two hundred and fifty billion of that a year in new money financing in the U.S. municipal market. Uh, I think most uh, people involved in the market would say it's got a lot more capacity than that. Uh, but the issue is really the ability to afford uh, the infrastructure that we need. And that's how, do, gonna, how that, do we do that? Because it seems to be, um, whether it's Republicans, Democrats, most, pe- most people agree that we need to do the spending. And yet when it comes to actually putting some kind of formal plan in place, we never get the, the dollars that we really need. Well, you make, you make a good point. Um, I'll, I'll say that over a long period of time, state and local governments have always, through sales tax mm-hmm. and other local taxes, have been raising money to build infrastructure for a long time. And it's not just new money is the issue. It's really also making sure you continue to repair the infrastructure that you've got, whether it's bridges or tunnels or roads. Maintenance. It's maintenance mm-hmm. as much right. as anything else. And so I'm from New Jersey, the state of toll roads. <laughs> <laughs> you know maintenance. <laughs> so, so you're helping to pay, keep those roads All in place. All the time. So, but the real issue, if you think about it, is what are you going to do to finance going forward? Now, the municipal market has been able to finance long-term infrastructure whether it's really, really small transactions mm-hmm. or enormous transactions like LIPA in the, in, uh, in the greater New York area. So it's a revenue stream that we need to look for, which is how do you either raise taxes or get support from somewhere else in order to finance these essential infrastructure projects? Uh, in December of 1985, as the building we're in right here in Battery Park City was being completed, uh, there was uh, $55 billion in municipal bonds issued. It was the biggest month in the history of muni bonds. That might be surpassed this month. 
That's correct. Um, right. That's an amazing time for you guys. That was to be the previous in this tax bill, right? <laughs> and well, talk to me about the impact of this tax bill. And, and so we see a lot of activity out of fear of what this tax bill might have, right? Where they want to get these deals out now because they might not be around to do that in, in in four or five weeks. Is that right? Well, there are two major elements that are mm-hmm. uh, in doubt in the current tax bill. One is current refundings of existing financings. Uh, excuse me, um, advance refundings of existing financings. Right. And the second is private activity bonds. PABs. PABs. Uh, so the first, uh, advance refundings are an important uh, source of efficiency and cost savings for municipalities. But if those deals don't get refunded between now and the end of the year and that part of the bill uh, remains, they'll get refunded at some future point. Uh, the uh, If we lose private activity bonds, although that's not a part of the activity of BAM, it's mm-hmm. not what we insure, but nonetheless, it's a very important part of the market. It's the equivalent of what people call P3, public-private partnerships, mm-hmm. financed by uh, tax-exempt bonds. And uh, it would be a shame to lose that when we're trying to go positively in the direction of more infrastructure finance. To lose uh, an efficient element uh, of the market would be unfortunate. Why isn't, why isn't infrastructure included more aggressively in this tax bill? Well, you what? know, it's, it's, a, it's a twofold issue. One are, are which projects are federal issues and which projects are state and local issues. And right. you're going to speak to a number of other people today that focus on the state and local part, which is where the vast majority of infrastructure as you know it, other than I-95, right. gets done. Right. So if you think about it, at BAM, what we do is we insure municipal bonds to lower the cost of uh, borrowing for these municipalities. But each local government decides which projects they want to do. They put them on the ballot. The voters usually approve Mm -hmm. the revenue stream, whether it's an increase in taxes or another revenue stream, in order to pay that infrastructure project off over a long period of time. That's a long history of doing that, and that works very well. The issue right now is that major infrastructure has to be done at the federal level. And you know, when, when the current administration got in, they identified 100 big projects that needed to be done, mm-hmm. and let's hope they get those projects a revenue stream so that they can come to market and get financed. But that's the big issue. It's not market access okay. for these. It's a revenue stream in order to pay for them. But yeah, good the, luck with that. Yeah, you know, the unfortunate thing is that no one's figured out how to finance infrastructure for free yet. Yeah. Well, uh, we, yeah. we are, we are going to have to pay for it, and the issue is whether you impose taxes today to pay for it 100% now, or whether you uh, kick the can borrow, down the road. Well, you can you can essentially build infrastructure and pay for it off, pay for it over the twenty or thirty year useful life of that infrastructure, right. where it actually contributes to positively to the economy and to growth, and pay for it with user fees or identified uh, revenue streams. But it does have to be paid back. Hmm. Finally, John, let me ask you: Is there a more of a piecemeal approach to? The way, because of the way that uh, uh, the borrowing is happening, that master planning isn't happening in a big way. Communities aren't being planned in a, in a very large way, but small problems are being uh, dealt with instead of big ones. Well, you, I, you know, everything starts at, at a small level. So if you think about certain projects that are done within a state, uh, at the state level, they focus on, on some of the larger projects, mm-hmm. and then they work their way down all the way to schools. So. What the issue is, is making sure that the people in the community are focused on which projects they feel they need to finance. Which ones do they need? 
because essentially... So we don't have to go back to the days of Robert Moses and, and bulldozing whole cities because one person thought it was a good idea. I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think that, you know, uh, what we do is serve building that really the essential projects mm-hmm. that you live with day to day. When you get into the subway, right. that was funded with municipal bonds. Right. When you, you know, go to the U.S. Tennis Center, that was funded with municipal bonds. Right. The hospitals you go to, they're funded with municipal bonds. And these are all essential municipal services that are fundamental to the way we live. And so at BAM, what we do is two things. One, we're really focused on helping the small and medium-sized issuers, cities and towns, come to market and lower their cost of funding. And second, we provide financial transparency. So if you come to our website at buildamerica.com, we write a summary for every credit that we do, available for free. So if you're a municipal bond investor and you say, boy, I want to look at a a bond and figure out really what's going on in that city or town or that school district, we make that available for you. Interesting. So lots of transparency there. Lots of transparency. So you know exactly what you're investing into. Precisely. That's, yeah. I love infrastructure. I wish we had more time. We've got to run, but hopefully right. we can continue this conversation another time. Thank, Thank you very much for Thanks. coming here. Thank you. Sean McCarthy, Chief Executive Officer at Build America Mutual BAM, and also Bob Cochran, Chairman of BAM, and we are here at BAM headquarters in New York City. It's survival in the city. We do want to talk about the cities. Uh, keep in mind that the municipal bond market preparing for a potential onslaught of bond deals. Corey talked about this earlier before the end of the year as uh, U.S. lawmakers consider pulling the tax break from tens of billions of dollars of debt issued each year. Let's get some thoughts on that and why the muni bond market is crucial to U.S. infrastructure investment. Kind of continue that conversation we just started. Clarence Anthony is CEO at the Advocacy and Lobby Group, National League of Cities, based in Washington, right? Yes, that's mm-hmm. correct. Uh, and the group represents thousands of cities, towns, and villages, but he joins us at BAM headquarters in New York City. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Thank you very much for having me here today. Tell us a little bit about who you guys mm-hmm. represent and what you do. Yeah, we are the National League of Cities. Uh, We are the voice for cities all over America. Um, Cities, towns, and villages, 19,000 of them. Big, small, all kinds. All kinds, from New York City down to Sop Choppy, Florida, uh, where I'm, I didn't grow up there, but I'm from Florida. And- um, Sop Choppy, Florida? Yeah, there's a city called Sop Choppy, Florida. I like that. And and we make sure that uh, the voice with the administration as well as with Congress, we make sure they hear the voice of city leaders. Um, And it's a big job right now, what's Uh, going on in Washington. Yeah. Let's talk about Washington right now. And what does Washington want to hear from small communities and cities? Uh, you know, this administration's been unique in many forms. And I wonder what the reaction is to what small towns and, and, and big cities need. I think that what we have been focused on is trying to get the attention uh, on an infrastructure plan for cities. Um, as uh, Sean and Bob indicated, um, you know, where the rubber meets the road is in local governments, uh, where we control 95% of the road systems, the bridges, half a million bridges, you know, 1,600 airports. I mean, you can go on and on and on. And what we'd like to see is for Congress as well as the administration to focus on an infrastructure plan and allow us, um, will give us a partner to deal with the uh, crumbling infrastructure in America. Clarence, I want to ask you something that I asked um, Sean and Bob, and that is, again, most people will say infrastructure spending, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the country. It's probably a good thing for our economy. Uh, And yet, when it comes down to it, we can't seem to get a massive project, certainly with some federal direction, federal support. 
underway. You, the group is in Washington. What are you hearing right now? Well, I mean, we thought this was going to be an easy thing out of out of the gate yeah. when President Trump came in with his team, and yet here we are. There's no question. We thought that we would have a partner in in trying to get infrastructure uh, funded in America. Um, you know, um, it's already been said. You know, we have a D plus in America infrastructure. I think that if if we really want to see our economy grow, mm-hmm. we want to see communities grow and jobs. It's about the infrastructure. Uh, that creates those opportunities. We've not been able to, at this point, get that focus on infrastructure. What we're faxing, f- uh, fighting now with tax reform, uh, Bill, is trying to save uh, the tax exemption on mu- uh, muni bonds. Mm-hmm. We're trying to save the private activity bonds, the, the new markets tax credits. You can go on and on. Those things that help local leaders invest and reinvest in their communities. We just want a toolbox of things, money and funds, uh, to be able to uh, deal with this deficit that we have in um, infrastructure. So we're, we're a willing partner. We don't want to get focused on all those other things that are happening in Washington. We're focused on what is important to cities. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, is, are the needs of cities when it comes to lending right now substantially different than uh, smaller municipalities, you mentioned villages and Sopchoppy and the like. Yeah. Are the, are the needs of big cities very different or they're just bigger? Uh, they're just bigger. I mean, you, you need a toolbox that would um, include uh, muni bonds, uh, private activity bonds, no matter the size of your city. Because so one of the things I travel around, the few cities I travel around, and they tend to be the same cities, but I spend a lot of time in San Francisco, I spend a lot of time in New York, I spend a lot of time in Los Angeles, I just got back from Chicago last week. And I see a problem of homelessness that I haven't seen in my lifetime, including, you know, mm-hmm. in this city in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and it seems to be re- universal across all those cities. And I don't see it. In, you know, I was in Grand Rapids last week. I didn't see it. I've, I've been in other smaller places. I haven't seen it. And, and it seems like that's a unique problem. Yeah, it is one of the issues that we're dealing with. And, and it's very complex. I mean, it may be because you're a veteran. Veterans homelessness is something that is a priority for the National League of Cities, and we've gotten uh, mayors all over America competing to make sure that they get rid of uh, veterans homelessness in their communities. But we also have the opioid problem Mm -hmm. that is causing many of the homeless issues that we're seeing, especially um, you know, in the rural communities of America. Right. And, and now that is becoming a major issue in the urban communities as well. So um, you also look at just the affordability for the millennials and the, and the young folks that are coming out of uh, college uh, to be able to afford homes. So it's a very complex issue, it, mm. but it exists in every city. You may not have seen it, but that issue, because of the whether it's opioids, whether it's uh, inability to afford homes. I was going to say affordability and the gap between the rich and the poor starts to play itself out when we see those people on the street. In a major way. Yeah. We're talking with Clarence Anthony, CEO of National League of Cities at uh, BAM headquarters in downtown New York. So you mentioned some of the provisions, if you will, in the tax overhaul uh, legislation that's working its way through Congress. If indeed some of the benefits to the muni market are taken out, what do you think that would mean for cities and infrastructure spending? Well, first of all, it's the cost of uh, borrowing. That's the first thing that would go up. And um, the cost of borrowing means that less investments in parks, uh, they're going to have to look at their investment in police and fire protection. 
because you're going to have to pay more money to build the infrastructure that we don't have a partner with right. at the federal level. So that's the first piece that we will have. Um, the other thing that um, it does, if it strips um, the uh, uh, deduction or the preemption uh, from muni bonds, mm -hmm. what we're going to have is um, less investment in infrastructure periods, uh, the community centers, um, the, the, the airports. I mean, you go on right. and on. We use all of that in the water, wastewater systems in our cities. So, um, just quickly, just yeah. got 20 seconds. If, yes. if the economy grows faster, though, then might we see the spending? Is some of that kind of part of the equation, what we see with the economy? Yeah, I don't, I don't think the economy will be able to, to make up for the difference. The, the difference that we will see for the cost in local governments to, to uh, provide those services. So mm. um, it's, a, it's a difficult time now, but the National League of Cities and Build America Mutual is partnering to make sure that we are getting the best solutions to leaders all over America. Let's That's our role. Let's hope they listen. Clarence Anthony, yeah. CEO of National League of Cities. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you Carol. Much. Thank you, Corey. So our next guest knows an awful lot about the sun. He's got a state perspective on muni bonds and infrastructure. Ben Watkins is director of bond finance at the state of Florida. The sunshine state. It is indeed. Here at BAM headquarters uh, in lower Manhattan. Ben, good to have you here with us. Thank you. Good to be here. So what do you spend most of your day doing? Oh, thinking about the market and paying attention to muni bonds. <laughs> what else is there? And what does the market tell you right now and how it relates to Florida? Oh, so interest rates are really great. They've been great for a decade. I've been I've been wrong for 10 years waiting for rates to go up. We all so, have been. Yeah, okay. And uh, so we've been taking advantage of that by doing uh, refundings to save save uh, to lower our interest rate and save money for our citizens and taxpayers. How significant are those savings over the last 10 years? Oh, from my perspective, extraordinary. So we've executed about uh, $12 billion worth of refinancing. So we've refinanced over half of the debt that we have outstanding A at lot. the state. So that's extraordinary. And um, so savings level, $3 billion. And so $3 billion is significant. Yeah. Um, and so we've been able to take advantage of historically low interest rates by refinancing all of our debt. Uh, are you done? <laughs> we <laughs> wouldn't be but for Congress's proposal to you make, right. take stuff us in? out of the business. Do you want to squeeze stuff in before the end We're of the year? We're going to try to accelerate things. That's inconsistent with our normal discipline, which is just take them as they come and take them in bite-sized pieces. But given the extraordinary circumstances, we're going to move a little up. So, um, and, and I'm sorry, I, uh, you were saying about the, what Congress is trying to do. What, what, what's, Congress, what's the worst of what Congress is trying to do to you right now? So one of the proposals in tax reform that's both in the House and the Senate proposal is to eliminate our ability to do advance refundings. So what does that mean? That eliminates our ability to mm -hmm. be able to refinance debt at lower interest rates. And it, it impairs our ability to provide real economic savings to our citizens and taxpayers. That's what it does to us. So that $3 billion, well, that's $3 billion less we have available for investment in infrastructure. Why do you think Congress is doing this? I mean, is, uh, it, is it that much income for that? They're misguided. Uh, that's my best answer. They don't understand, and they don't necessarily want to understand. So you stop and think about it. So, you know, it's all about the scoring thing, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is, uh, so think about this for a second. $1.4 trillion. I mean, that has so many zeros, I can't even count it. The impact of the advance for funding. Want, yeah, well, would you write that up on the board? Between, the, between all of his fingers and toes, we can get there. Yeah, okay. So $17 billion is what this cost over 10 years. 
the federal government. That's what they say. That's how JCT and CBO scored it. So well, the new right. jo- the new Joint Committee on Taxation score just came out, like literally just came out, and it says that uh, the budget deficit they've got the highest estimate for growth of any of the estimates out there, averaging a 0.8 percent increase in GDP, and still they think the deficit's going to increase by more than a trillion dollars. Right. So here's my point, Charlie. Is, so all that is is a game. That's a scoring game. That's about the deficit. How big do we want the deficit to be? State and local governments, we're talking about true economic savings. We're talking about dollars that have to be charged our citizens and taxpayers to pay the debt service on our bonds, to build infrastructure, and they're impairing our ability to do that. So this is real dollars. This is not just made-up stuff inside the Beltway kind of gaming on scoring deficits, and that's how they're impacting us. Well, you know, Corey and I spend a lot a lot of time talking with uh, various guests about trying to understand why, you know, infrastructure spending uh, hasn't really kind of gotten through um, Washington, especially when that was certainly a big push by President Trump. That is a big push of his. And yet this provision may be in this GOP tax overhaul bill. How do we reconcile that if he's for infrastructure? And yet you're saying that by this provision um, in the tax bill, it's going to prevent maybe some infrastructure from right. happening, perhaps in Florida. Right. I, I, or cost I, you guys a lot more if you want to pursue those projects. Right. So think about it like this. I, first off, I think they're irreconcilable. I think they're diametrically opposed. I think you can say one thing and saying one thing and doing another thing to me is not being genuine and, and sincere about what you really what your priorities. Really Florida's are. an important. So- Mind everybody. I would think so. I so think so. Are you being heard in Washington? Absolutely. With the with the proposal that we have today, that's on the table today, that's going to impair our ability to be able to lower our interest rate and save dollars. We have to balance our budget. This is not a game. It's dollars in equal dollars out. We're not inside the beltway. We can't play footsies under the table between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and print money. And so if you ha- if, if, if the cost to me is higher, that means there's necessarily going to be less of it. Um, so is there a fix? I mean, what, what are you doing to try to fix this problem? I mean, so I've written my Congress, right, to <laughs> yeah. lay all of this out, right? Who is that? Um, so Senator Rubio and Senator Nelson and an yeah. array of people at the congressional level right. to explain this in a very simple way because people say, oh, well, munis are complicated. This is not complicated. I'd be happy to explain it to Chairman it's Brady and, and yeah. Chairman Hatch. I mean, you guys, I get them on the phone. I mean, so I sent this. I told them, hey, we saved $3 billion. This makes no sense at any level. It's inconsistent with your policy. It's going to result in less investment in infrastructure. Ben, do we know that for a fact that it will, it will result in less investment in infrastructure? By definition, yes, it will. I mean, that's the reality because you have less money. If you have less money, you're going to do less of it. What if the economy is humming along? Doesn't help you. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Why? Because uh, certainly it'll help in terms of... Can afford it better if the economy is helping along and get wage growth? So you can do more pay-go, right? But this eliminates our ability to to finance infrastructure. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. And so when you think about it at the local government level, we have dedicated revenue streams for specific things, for specific projects. Water systems, sewer systems, electric utilities, schools, um, roads. That's what we're talking about in terms of financing infrastructure. The debt associated with it has an interest rate associated with it. We have to pay for that before we turn the lights on. So what will happen if this provision is included in the final um, tax overhaul provision? There'll be a a higher cost basis that has to be passed on to the citizens and taxpayers. Or projects don't get done. Or projects don't get done. 
Uh, this is dramatic. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised, given that your, your point about a Republican governor to your position, that uh, uh, you see a lot of problems with this Republican tax bill. Well, so uh, I uh, completely agree, but I call it like I see it. Whether mm. it's D or it's R, I'm agnostic about it. But so back to my point about, you know, I, I communicated this in a very simple, very straightforward, very understandable way to our congressional delegation and Senate offices. You know what I got back? Crickets. Wow. Not even the courtesy of a response, right? So what do you do with that? So they're living in their own world, and they don't really understand that the that seventy five percent of the infrastructure in this country is financed by is paid for with state by state and local governments. Right. It doesn't come out of Washington D.C. It's not money raining out of the sky. It's something we do, and um, and the and the tool that we use to do this, of course, is tax exempt bonds, tax advantage bonds, which makes it less costly to provide for the infrastructure for America. So the, the impairing our ability to be able to reduce our cost is inconsistent with po is bad policy, um, usurps local control, right. and it disrespects the partnership right. we have with the federal government on how infrastructure is built in this country. Ben, we've got to run. Okay. I like this conversation. I wish we could do more. Grace up Ben Watkins, Director yeah. of Finance for the State of Florida. says when it comes to U.S. infrastructure, funding is the pro problem, not capital. Christopher Hamill is head of municipal finance at RBC Capital Markets, joining us here at uh, BAM headquarters in downtown New York City. Nice to have you here. A pleasure. So explain away. Well, you know, a lot of the proposals that you hear about addressing infrastructure um, develop more borrowing programs. Mm -hmm. And really the challenge for state and local government is not where to borrow, but how to pay it back. And so any meaningful solution going forward has to address the issue of where additional funding as opposed to financing is going to come from. Uh, does that mean you, we've exhausted the vast reservoirs of creativity from investment bankers? No, it just means that at the end of the day, any form of capital, be it municipal bonds, which is my own expertise, right. or private equity, or other forms of debt have to be paid back. And so the the strain for state and local government to do more is to develop other sources of revenue by which they could uh, finance their infrastructure. So great for the people who live in those areas and <laughs> feel like they're getting tapped. But no, Chris, when you, when you talk to folks ar around uh, the country, what do they see as new areas of revenue sources to pay all this back? Well, I think the first obligation of government is to do more with existing resources. And so a lot of be us... Be smarter, be more efficient with the, the capital that they've got. Correct. And you see in the state of New York, Governor Cuomo advancing a concept called design build, which is really not about financing, but how to build infrastructure at a lower cost. My firm commissioned a study on the Tappan Zee Bridge, which mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. nearing completion. Yeah. Right. And because of, because of design-build procurement, that was built for 20% less cost than a normal procurement method. And the New York State Legislature has not yet given the city of New York the ability to use that procurement method. Wait, how does it work? Well, what it does is... That's a, that's a big savings. It is. Uh, what it does is combine the design aspects of building a project with the construction. And I don't know if you've ever remodeled your house. If you've hired an architect and then turned the plans over to the contractor, 
lots of times it doesn't work. Right. And what it does is combine those two steps into a single, um, a single party that performs both steps. So with the notion you, des- you design cost savings and you say, the builder might say, actually, there's a, there's a new kind of concrete you can use in this, or there's a new light bulb you could use there, or whatever. Precisely. It, it integrates the two functions more efficiently, Why? and it brings down Why wouldn't you do that? Well, you know, <laughs> Every, right. I, with I, everything. I built, a house, I built a house about seven or eight years ago in San Francisco, and the, the builder and the architect, we spent a lot of time all of us sitting together uh, at early stages of the house, but also throughout the construction of the house. Right. That is, that is what it takes, and that's what this procurement method uh, permits. And so about 40 states have it, but New York is one of the states that only applies that in a limited capacity. And I think Governor Cuomo has used it for five to seven projects at the state level, but they don't have it yet at the city level. Because I have to say, I come from New Jersey and grew up, you know, and- Where everything works smoothly. (laughs) But there's just- I shouldn't say that when I'm so close to New Jersey, should I? But there's so much waste. You can see it, whether it's through bureaucracy, so that the money isn't spent on the things, whether it's schools, whether it's bridges, whether it's roads. Sure, And, and I- I genuinely believe beyond this, we're going to need more tax revenue. But I think you build the political credibility. I'm about as taxed out as I can be and getting ready for a lot more taxes because of tax overhaul. And and so if you can convince voters, taxpayers, that you're using existing dollars efficiently, um, they might be more open-minded about ponying up additional funds to build more projects. Mm -hmm. I don't mind smart spending. Uh, Precisely. And I think that's... A bipartisan belief. Yeah. Well, I mean, smart. I mean, you know, of course it is. I mean, it's right. easy to have Rather smart than spending. stupid spending. Right. It's like the difference <laughs> between major and minor surgery. Minor <laughs> surgery is on me, on you. Major right. surgery is if they start cutting me. But, uh, uh, you know, I think that's true of, of, of programs and too. But uh, uh, is there a sense, though, that, you know, that, that there's one of the arguments that Republicans have put forth with this tax bill is that if, in fact, they get rid of uh, state local tax deductions, for example, and other deductions, talk about getting right. rid of, it will force municipalities and, and cities or, or governments, uh, state governments, in particular, to lower t- to spend less, do less, and uh, cut taxes. Um, that seems uh, like a pushing on a string, to I be kind. couldn't agree with you more. I, I think for state and local government, um, particularly the House bill is very much headed in the wrong direction, that it's, it's going to put more strain overall on their budgets, and that is going to hinder what I think everyone believes that the country needs to be do more on infrastructure. And, and the House bill really is a non-starter for any meaningful infrastructure policy discussion next year. You know, I'm assuming you spent some time in Washington. We were just talking with Ben Watkins um, of the state of Florida. He's a really smart guy. He's a lot of fun. I have to tell you, we got a, a bunch of viewer responses, too, who are like, amen, what do you have right. to say, especially about the frustration in I getting... I think you'd use decaf, personally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no caffeine after two. Um, but frustration with people in Washington hearing what really needs to be done on the ground. What do you hear from folks? Well, and we just got about 40 seconds, really, 35 seconds. Very quickly, what, what the federal government needs to do is broaden the options available to state and local government with, with remembering that you know, 70% of the infrastructure spend 
every year comes from state and local government. Infrastructure is really a state and local function. Mm -hmm. And what the federal government needs to do is create policies that allow them to do more, not try to federalize those projects. And, I, and Ben is one of those really smart guys who know how to run a, an infrastructure program. Yeah, fascinating. I was telling him I, I was down when uh, Port of Miami when they were building mm -hmm. the tunnel and watching the cranes come in from China and out in the water, and it was pretty fascinating. Yes. That was a public-private partnership right. and, and interesting to see it get done. We got to run. Thank you so much. Thank Enjoyed you. Enjoyed it. Chris Hamill, head of municipal finance at RBC Capital Markets here at BAM headquarters in New York City. This is Bloomberg Radio. Ay, 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 Puerto Rico. Talk about municipal finance problems. Puerto Rico, uh, uh, it's got to come to the top of the list when you look across all the uh, parts of the United States that are having issues. Uh, but a uh, perfect person to talk to about that and more about what we're learning about the issues as it relates to municipal finance and the uh, infrastructure build-out. Ken Hydeshaw joins us right now. He was the director of the U.S. Treasury Department's Office of State and Local Finance, exactly the guy in the government who mm -hmm. uh, should know how to make these things work. Now he's with Ernst & Young. Uh, and, and so glad to have you here with us. Um, let's talk about Puerto Rico. Uh, Puerto Rico, we've, we've done a lot of stories about Puerto Rico debt. Uh, we've had Kate Long on the show uh, talking about that, who's, who's so, uh, uh, you, you laugh, you know Kate, and she's, she knows this uh, stuff so well and has been so helpful to us to understand it. But uh, after Maria, uh, it seems like the problems that Puerto Rico has, has had, have they've been blamed for those problems going into it, but unable to get around them to solve these problems uh, that are coming up uh, after since the uh, hurricane. Listen, we had a wonderful lunch today at the Municipal Forum where Ben Watkins described uh, how, our, as a country, we respond uh, to disasters. And it's a bottoms-up approach. Um, it's local and state governments working together. They're on the front line, and the federal government is their partner from a funding point of view. And it takes that capacity to respond. When you have a government that's under the stress like Puerto Rico is, um, a storm of this magnitude, the worst in 90 years, mm -hmm. um, it really unveils um, the um, lack of capabilities uh, in this kind of area. Running a government every day is hard, but running it with uh, the situation that they're in now is extremely difficult. And so I think we're in uncharted waters in terms of the role of state and local government in Puerto Rico versus federal government and, and who has which responsibility and how to allocate that properly. So do we need to can't kind of rethink the relationship and responsibilities between the federal government of the United States and Puerto Rico? Well, we did that, and Congress did that um, in June of 2016, and it's called PROMISA, uh, which was an unprecedented piece of legislation. Uh, other than Washington, D.C., the federal government has never come in and imposed a uh, financial oversight board over our government mm -hmm. um, and in return for having access to debt restructuring authorities. So that was pre-hurricane. Um, now we have a situation where... Um, the federal government will have to respond with billions, if not tens of billions of dollars, um, going in to rebuild Puerto Rico. It's now truly a humanitarian crisis. We saw some and numbers today about death, uh, just people dying in the, in the country. And the, the, compared to the statistical average in recent months, we've seen over 1,000 people die in, in the last month in hurricane who might not have otherwise because of the conditions there. Uh, I have not been to Puerto Rico since the hurricane, but many of my friends have, and uh, it's extremely, extremely disturbing. But I guess what I would say is I think what Washington is talking about now is how are we going to respond in terms of this aid? Right. And 
is there going to be a plan and who is going to have input and ultimately who is going to um, have final say on what that plan will be. And I think um, there is no question, given the dollars that Washington well, has to spend in Puerto I'm Rico. I'm looking at a number like $94 billion right now. Well, that's the... Damages. That's the governor's number. Yeah. Uh, there are still uh, technical damage assessments underway. It will be some time before we know the exact number, but it's a big number. I mean, Bernie Sanders said it's $147 billion. What, what should be the future of Puerto Rico? Well, uh, once we get past, God forbid, you know, or God hoping we get through this much more <laughs> soon, the crisis that's there, but what should be the future of Puerto Rico? Well, the future of Puerto Rico has to be a fiscally well-managed territory with an economic future. How do you get there? And second, thirdly, there has to be ultimately, in my view, a resolution on status. PROMISA specifically, yeah. um, because of the politics of the situation, we said, let's put status aside until we can fix the fiscal situation and get the economy growing. Right. Um, but the real question is, what is the economic rationale uh, for Puerto Rico and how many people on the island uh, support that economic rationale. And I in think other words, Puerto Rico, the people of Puerto Rico getting a vote in Congress. Well, no, that's the issue of status. Right. right. And, and uh, I think you know, the country is responsible for allowing um, the situation in Puerto Rico to be in this um, no man's land for decades. Um, the and United States. Uh, yes. Yeah. Ultimately, we have to make a decision about how we're going to treat our territories as U.S. citizens in the country. Uh, and, and, and just finally here, um, it, it sounds like also there's tension between the governor of Puerto Rico and, 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 the, and Washington. And uh, that is part of the problem, deciding who's going to be responsible. Yes. I mean, there are many players, and, and uh, there's the administration, and there's probably not a, a uniform vo voice in the, in the administration on the issue, whether it's FEMA or HUD or Treasury or OMB. And there's Congress. And so... Uh, there's going to be an opportunity in the coming weeks with a supplemental appropriations bill mm -hmm. um, that will affect both Florida, Texas, Puerto Rico, and California to address this issue. What is the amount of money that should be spent, and how should it be spent, and who should make those decisions? We have to run, but I hope we could talk in the future. Ken Haichu, he's strategic advisor at Ernst & Young's Transaction Advisory Services team here at BAM headquarters. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for your Movers and Shakers on this Thursday afternoon. Carol Masser, along with Corey Johnson, we are live in downtown New York at BAM headquarters. We'll get more on the muni market, infrastructure spending in just a moment. First up, though, S&P 500, 377 names in the index higher today. We had quite a rally uh, on Wall Street. Uh, we have 127 names lower, one unchanged. Let me talk about Kroger, the second biggest gainer in the S&P 500. Shares of Kroger up more than 6% up 
up a buck forty-eight to twenty-five eighty-six a share. That stock, though, still down twenty-five percent in twenty seventeen. Well, Kroger, which was up as much as fourteen percent, almost fourteen percent at wow. its highs today. So yeah, I mean, ended up up six percent, so it pulled off substantially. But uh, Kroger, even as we see competition heating up uh, in the the grocery industry, um, this company, which has been battered for months by pessimism after Amazon um, bought Whole Foods exactly. and has been pushing right fiercely into this industry, uh, it jumped the most in uh, almost 25 years after the company posted, Corey, same-store sales that beat estimates. Kroger also sees sales growth continuing in the fourth quarter. So some upbeat news, and that stock just shooting up. This uh, Kroger shares session. are up. 29% since the 1st of October. So about the time that you could walk into a store uh, in a Whole Foods owned by Amazon, uh, Kroger shares started rallying and have been rallying ever since. I'm, I just want to look at the gross margins for Kroger because that was such an interesting part of this story. Yeah. Uh, gross margins were covering to positive numbers 1% after uh, uh, the first positive numbers in, in, uh, in three quarters. That's I want to point deal. out Michael's yeah. stores. Michael's uh, stock. Uh, you shop been, there all the time, don't I, you? Well, I do all, a lot of scrapbooking, as everyone knows. I spend a lot of time with, with the scrapbooks and <laughs> the scraps. I would love to see. And putting them in books. Okay. That's what scrapbooking is, right? You just take junk and you stick it in books? Yeah. Okay. Not always junk. Well, it's helping It's helping Michaels. Uh, uh, third quarter earnings, uh, uh, very strong. Same store sales up 1%, a sequential improvement, a trend that's likely to continue into the holidays, or such was the guidance after the call. Uh, uh, higher price seasonal items, of course, uh, good for them. Uh, and you know what's really good for uh, Michaels? What? Is your daughter into this? What? Slime. She has this, played this around slime with slime. Thing, <laughs> this slime thing is driving sales at Michael. Yes, you can buy stock in slime and look at Michael's stores. Michael's stores stock uh, rallying on this tremendous sales of slime in the quarter and all the slime stuff. Stock up 11.6%, closing at 21.60 because of slime. Who knew? How come I didn't get on that? That's another one, right? Staring at me in the face. Did you miss Bitcoin too? You wow. know, I did a Bitcoin interview for a the rival radio station in San Francisco today. Missed. What? I got a text message from a friend of mine yeah. who said he opened up a Coinbase account and forgot to put the $5,000 <gasps> into it that he meant two years ago. He knew he didn't, but he's like, I was going to put $5,000. It's what I usually do with a new investment. Would have been worth $500,000 today. Oops. Yeah. Note to self. Don't do slime. that again. And uh, missed slime. I'm sure he did. CVS, fourth biggest gainer in the S&P 500. Shares of CVS Health up 4.4%, up more than 3 bucks at 76.60 a share in today's session. Still down about 3% this year. CVS Health uh, nearing an agreement to buy health insurer Aetna for more than $65 billion, according to a person familiar with the negotiations. Did I miss that that deal actually got done? No, I'm just looking to see if I missed a headline. Uh, so said to be near to uh, buy health insurer Aetna for more than $65 billion, according to a person familiar with the negotiations. It's a deal that could reshape the pharmacy and health insurance industries. And an announcement could come as soon as uh, this coming Monday. Uh, but we'll have to see. CVS likely to agree to pay at least $200 a share for Aetna with more than 30% paid with for ca or paid for with cash, I should say. Talks could, though, still fall apart. All right, let's get to the Volatility Index let's. report. It was exciting for the Volatility Index. If I type in the VIX into my Bloomberg terminal, I go to the VIX Check Index. Check it out, up 6.4%. Yeah, so a rise of 6. Point, even at the final close, I got 6.6%. <laughs> uh, but to close at 1141, and now by, uh, you know, contextually, we have the VIX trading up below 10 for uh, uh, you know four of the last uh, six days. Mm -hmm. But today, up ele to 1141, 6.4%. When stocks rally. Uh, after 6.7% yesterday. So we've had four gains in the VIX, and the VIX uh, crossing 200-day moving <laughs> average as well. This is Bloomberg.
All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! We're talking to Dave, Dave Wilson, our stock editor with his stock of the day. That would be at home group. It's what you get when you put together furniture and home furnishings. Not the Un- old at home. The no, old definitely Perkins, not, uh, internet Corey. provider. Absolutely <laughs> not. We're talking about a company that describes itself as a home decor seller. I just uh, love that this company exists given what at home was back in the dot-com bubble. Well, there you go. I mean, the company uh, that we now know as at home operates more than 125 stores, each one offering more than 50,000 items for sale. At Home has been around since 1979 and went public in August of last year. The ticker, as you might expect, is HOME. The initial public offering was made at $15 a share. After months of struggling to stay above that price, the stock began rising this past April. Today, at Home climbed a record after fiscal third quarter results were well received. The report came out late yesterday. Revenue beat the average analyst estimate in the Bloomberg survey by the widest margin since the IPO. Sales growth at stores opened more than a year, accelerated for a third straight quarter. Earnings surpassed estimates as well. Now, that trifecta sent at-home surging 17%. That was the second biggest gain ever for the stock. The largest followed the release of first quarter results in June. Put it all together, and today's advance brought the stock's gain since the IPO to 84%. All right. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson with his stock of the day. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays, 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 